0: I want to start our time this morning by reading not from John, which is the series we're in, but from um, reading from the Gospel of Luke. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read a portion of Luke 5 and make some comments as we go along. Um, And this is an important uh, backdrop for the passage we will study in the Gospel of John today. And it's a very familiar story, but it's going to help us better understand what we're about to look at. So this event that I'm going to talk about takes place very early in the public ministry of, of Jesus. It's right after he had been rejected in his hometown of Nazareth and right after he had called his first disciples to follow him. Remember? Simon Peter and his brother Andrew. Very good. All right, A little, little bit of a quiz this morning. And the two other, two other brothers, James and John, the sons of... Zebedee. Very good. Awesome. Okay. Here's the story. One day as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. And he noticed two empty boats at the water's edge for the fishermen had left them and were cleaning their nets. So Jesus sees these two available boats, the crowds are pressing in, and he recognizes these boats, they belong to the family fishing operation of his brand new disciples. So he sees these boats and he sees an opportunity to put some distance between himself and this huge crowd. He can stand in the boats and teach from there. Now, these men have been out fishing all night on the Sea of Galilee. Unsuccessfully, we're gonna find out, And they're now washing their nets and they're cleaning up for the day. It says, stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and he taught the crowds from there. So, brilliant strategy. Let's push out into the shallow water of the lake, and that'll put some distance between us and the crowd on the shore. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Now go out where it's deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. Now, remember, just a moment ago, they had been cleaning up. And if you've ever worked a job where at the end of your shift you've got to break everything down and clean everything up before you go home, the last thing you want to do is reopen. Right? The last thing you want to do is to take these brand new, you know, freshly clean things and put them back in the water. Master Simon replied, "We worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing." But he says, somewhat reluctantly, If you say so, I'll let the nets down again. A shout for help. Oh, wait, let me just, this is verse 6. And this time, okay, the nets go out. This time their nets were so full of fish, they began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners in the other boat, and soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. This is a massive haul of fish, probably the biggest catch these guys had ever seen. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, and I love that, meaning that he recognized that the power for this amazing catch was not good luck or good fortune, but the power was this rabbi, this new rabbi of his sitting in the boat. Here's what he said. He fell to his knees before Jesus and said, O oh Lord, go away from me, for I am a sinful man. Hmm. For he was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught, as were the others. With him. So again, this is new for Peter. He doesn't have the details yet, but what he knows is something really supernatural just happened. And this person I'm with is no ordinary man. Jesus replied to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. Fishers of men, right? And as soon as they landed, they, the four of them, Peter, and Andrew, James, and John, left everything and they followed Jesus. So this this is the moment for these four guys, the turning point. How how do we keep on fishing for a living when we've just witnessed this, when we've just experienced this divine move of God? And they began to follow Jesus full-time from that point forward. So that's the backdrop. Keep that story in mind. And let's go now to John chapter 21. John chapter 21, and we're going to see something similar happen in our story for this morning. Now, last week, remember, we wrapped up chapter 20. Some of you guys were very distressed with me because we skipped over some verses. I caught an earful, but we looked at the post-resurrection appearances of the Lord. In particular, we looked at two verses. Two times when Jesus came to his guides when they were locked in a room hiding from the Jewish authorities. The first one without Thomas and then a second occurrence where Thomas was there and after seeing the risen Christ and and hearing him say, Thomas, go ahead, look at my hands, touch my side. Do you remember what Thomas had declared? My Lord and my God. One of the great Christological declarations in, in the entire Bible, right? My Lord and my God. And then we skipped over those last two verses in John 20, and they are the, the two verses that describe the entire purpose of John writing his gospel. That's why you guys were so mad at me for skipping it. But we're going to come back at the very end of the preaching series. I, I promise we will. But here's the question that gets raised in our minds by this this purpose statement at the end of chapter 20. And I've already, it's so funny, almost immediately last Sunday, a couple of you asked me about it. They're like, I don't understand this. Here's the question. If John states his purpose at the end of of chapter 20, and if he's arrived at his high point, which is Thomas's great declaration of who Jesus is, Lord and God, why not just call it a day? Why not just end the narrative there? Why add chapter 21? Some of you guys asked me that question last week, and it's a great question. Now, it's interesting. Many skeptical scholars have asked that same question, and a lot of them have said, well, maybe chapter 21 doesn't belong. doesn't belong to the gospel. Some of them believe it's a later edition of the gospel. Some have written that John didn't write it. Now, we should never be surprised at that, right? Because the world is always looking for reasons to undercut the authority of the Bible, it's just normal. So it, it, given an opportunity to, to look at something logically and go, well, that can't be a part of it, they're going to take that advantage. But there's many good reasons for believing that not only is chapter 21 authentic to John's gospel, but it's absolutely a critical part of his account. And as a historian, I can tell you, historically, they have no leg to stand on because when you, when you bring together all the old manuscripts we have of John's gospel, there is not one. Not one that doesn't have chapter 21 as a part of it. Not one. So there is no, and by the way, all the early church fathers spoke of the content of chapter 21 as well. So there's no question, we can be confident that yes, John wrote it, and yes, he planned to put his purpose statement at the end of chapter 20, and then continue on with chapter 21. So here's what I think is the best way to explain this, and if you're a creative person this morning, you're a writer, or you're a filmmaker, anything like that, you're gonna understand this chapter 21 is john's epilogue it's this epilogue now what does that mean an epilogue is what you find at the end of a book or at the end of a play where the story seems to finish but then the author gives you the audience a little more information about the characters and what happens in the future it's called an epilogue. We see this all the time in movies, right? You ever, you've, you, you've gone through two hours of a movie. It looks like it's wrapped up and you're, you're starting to relax. And all of a sudden the screen goes dark and a bunch of text comes up. And what does it say? It talks about what happens next, right? It says, so-and-so, they, they went out and got married, right? And lived happily ever after. Or, you know, after this, so-and-so did this in the future, whatever it is. So it's, it's looking to the future and saying, this is what happens next, and from a literary sense, this actually makes, really, makes a ton of sense for John's gospel. Remember the first 18 verses of John chapter 1, we called it what? A prologue. John's introduction, where he talked about, uh, about Jesus the Word, describing his pre-existence and his personhood and his identity as God the Son. So there's actually a beautiful balance here. We have a prologue on the front end, and now we have an epilogue on the back end. And this epilogue is designed to to tie up some loose ends about some of the characters, in particular, Simon Peter, right? But also John himself. They're going to tie up some loose ends here and then point us towards the future as Jesus is going to empower these very men to go out and change the world, to spread the gospel all across the ancient world. So let's remember where we were in chapter 20 in terms of location do you remember where the disciples were hiding out from the Jewish authorities? When Jesus appeared to them twice, they were somewhere down in Judea, right? Most likely somewhere within the confines of the city of Jerusalem, hiding out, but they were definitely in Judea. Now we open up chapter 21, we have a totally new venue, a totally new location. Likely between chapter 20 and 21, a couple of weeks has gone by, and now Peter and the guys are where? They're up in the north. They were in the south, but now they're in the north in the region of Galilee, which is so interesting because it's in Galilee where this whole mission started. We read it from Luke 5, right? This is the area where Jesus had first called all of these men to follow him. So it's a very, it holds a very special place in their heart, both for Jesus and for these guys. And I'll add this. If you've been to Israel, you know this is still a very special region in the land because it still remains so unspoiled. You can go to Galilee today, and a lot of it looks like it did in the first century. So it's a very special place, a beautiful part of Israel. Now, what caused these 11 guys to go back up to Galilee? We have a number of verses, biblical verses that point us in that direction. In Mark's gospel, in chapter 14, Mark says that on the night of his arrest, as they were leaving the upper room, Jesus said this to them. He said, you will all fall away because it is written... I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. So after celebrating Passover in that upper room, he says to the guys, I'm going to go ahead of you and I'll meet you in Galilee. Now, Matthew says something similar, but Matthew says it's actually the angel at the tomb speaking to the woman who makes a similar statement. It says this, the angel says to the women, go quickly and tell the disciples That he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So the disciples know at some point they've got to get back up to the north. Now, at the very end of Matthew's gospel, in the famous Great Commission passage that we all tend to know, Matthew gives us a tantalizing little detail that chances are you've read a million times, read right past it, and never thought about it. He tells us that Jesus gave the disciples a particular location to meet him, a mountain. This is what it says here. This is Matthew 28, verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Huh. Huh. And it's when they meet on that mountain, wherever it is, that we hear the Great Commission, where Jesus goes on to say, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That took place on a mountain in Galilee. And I find this so interesting. Jesus doesn't say, look, guys, when you get to Galilee, go to the synagogue, I'll meet you there. Or or go to Peter's home or so-and-so's home and and we'll all gather there and talk. He says, I want you to go to a mountain. And on this mountain, he is gonna deliver this epic missional statement that 2,000 years later, guys, still drives us as Christians to evangelize, right? The Great Commission. Now, we know mountains serve as significant backdrops all throughout the scriptures think about this from Mount Sinai where God met with Moses to Mount Carmel where Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal to Mount Moriah where Solomon built the first temple and where you can go today and see the Temple Mount still stands on Mount Moriah then you come into the New Testament we have the Mount of Beatitudes which is actually more of a slope but it's still called that the Mount of Transfiguration We have Mount Zion, and we have the Mount of Olives. And so we see that God tends to reveal himself in powerful ways on mountains. And so before he returns to his father, Jesus says, Look, guys, I'm going to go ahead of you into Galilee, and I will meet you on the mountain that I've designated. Now, which mountain? Sadly, for a geography history guy, it drives me crazy. Which mountain, Jesus? Couldn't you have just given us the location because it'd be really nice to go there? But he doesn't, right? All we know for sure is that it's a mountain in Galilee. Now, there's two long-held traditions about the location that you find in church history. The first one is that Jesus wanted to meet on Mount Tabor, which, by the way, many scholars believe is the same mountain where the Transfiguration took place. Some of you guys who've been to Israel, you recognize this. Mount Tabor is one of the most recognizable landmarks in all of Israel. It's about six miles to the east of Nazareth in lower Galilee, and it rises like this like this weird slope right in the middle of the Jezreel Valley. So it could be Mount Tabor. The other tradition is Mount Arbel. And again, if you've been to Israel, you know this place well. Mount Arbel, which is just south of Magdala, where where Mary Magdalene is from, right on the water's edge. In fact, one of the most spectacular views of the Sea of Galilee from Mount Arbel. We will be there in November, and we'll get a chance to look from that view. Now, In my mind, Arbel makes more sense. In light of what we're going to learn in John 21 today, Arbel makes the most sense, and I'll tell you why just a little bit later. Here's a map so that you can see where both of those spots are located in relation to the Sea of Galilee, because that matters for our story. The green dot is where Mount Tabor is, and the red dot is where Mount Arbel is located. But before that meeting on this mountain, whichever mountain it is, before that takes place and the Great Commission is delivered, We have today's story in John 21. This takes place first. Now, it's important as we begin to read chapter 21 that you understand what the disciples are going through. As we've said a hundred times so far, to put ourselves in their sandals to try to understand their mindset of what's going on. Here's a serious question for you. If you're one of the disciples and Jesus has come back from the dead, what would your expectations be of him? What would you want him to do? You've been on this roller coaster ride. You've got this master. You love him. You worship him. You serve him. He's crucified, and you're, you're in the, the lowest of lows, and then you find out he's raised from the dead. Now what? What are your expectations of him? Remember, they had spent three years together with him, right? They ate together. They traveled together. They camped out nighted together. They were constantly with Jesus. But now, from what we've seen, after the resurrection, he is not around a whole lot. And even the times he has appeared to his friends, it's been very sudden and for a very short period of time. Here's the thing. Is it possible that the disciples are going, where is he? You know, wh- why, isn't, why aren't we able to spend more time with him? Why don't we get some chunks of time with Jesus so we can understand more? I'm just telling you from my perspective, that's what I would be wanting. Like, why why isn't he showing up more over these couple of weeks? Because I want to spend time with my Lord. I want to hear more from him. So yeah, there's no question they are overwhelmingly joyful about the fact that Jesus is alive again. But it was becoming obvious to them that things had changed a great deal. And in the meantime, they'd been promised that God's Spirit was going to come and empower them for ministry, but that hadn't happened yet. What I'm trying to tell you is, by the way, when we open chapter 21, my guess is the disciples are pretty frustrated about what's happening here. They didn't have any specific instructions about what to do while they waited. Sure, they could have been preaching the gospel. They could have been sharing about Jesus, but they didn't have specific instructions. They didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. All they have is go to Galilee. I'll meet you there. But when? How long would they have to wait? Nobody knew for sure. And on top of that, they've got income issues, and they've got to eat. See, these are all the things as you read the Gospels, you're like, oh, I didn't think about that. They actually have to eat, right? Remember, during the three years of ministry, they'd been supported by various individuals, right? So their their needs were met. But think about it. Had the donations dried up since the crucifixion? Did they need to restart regenerating, regenerating income for themselves? We know that Peter lived in the town of Capernaum. You can see, go visit his house even today. We know he lived there. Is it practical to think that at some point they went back to Galilee and Peter went to see his wife in Capernaum and she said to him, hey Simon, how long are you supposed to wait? I've got bills to pay, Right? And so I'm thinking all the disciples are, are, still, are sort of in this frustrated place. So with that in mind, now let's see how it plays out. Look at verse 1 in John 21. After these things, meaning after the appearances of Jesus to the disciples, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. Now, Quick historical note, the fact that John calls it the Sea of Tiberius is one of those little tidbits of internal evidence that tells us John is writing much later in the first century because the term Sea of Tiberius becomes the more common name for the Sea of Galilee later in the first century. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't ever call it that. So it's a very interesting little tidbit that confirms about the time that John is writing. Continuing in verse 1, "...and he manifested himself..." in this way, Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana from Galilee and the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, remember John doesn't like to reference his own name in his gospel, and two others who are not named, two others of his disciples were together. Now, if they, had, if they were together up by Mount Arbel, they would have had a beautiful view of the lake, okay? And as any fisherman will tell you, If you get around a lake, it sort of beckons you, right? It's something about the smell of the the water and the fish and the nets and the boats and the whole thing. It basically says, come and go fishing. And these are Peter's old stomping grounds, right? He feels very much at home here, far away from city life in Jerusalem. This is what he loves. So verse three says what? Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. I love that. He's like, I'm going fishing. And what does it say? And they said to him, we'll come with you. Okay. Now, I have to tell you at this point that good scholars disagree about this decision. Some say that Peter's being very disobedient here, and some say this is completely permissible. Some look at this account and say, well, these guys were supposed to go to a particular mountain in Galilee and wait for the Lord. And maybe they did for a time, But Peter gets antsy. He's looking at the water. He's looking at the guys. He's looking at the water, and he's like, I'm going fishing, right? That's what fishermen do, and these scholars would point out, well, this sort of fits with Peter's personality. He's impulsive, and he's just going to go fishing, but here's the thing. We can't know the motivation for sure, but a good half of the scholars think, yeah, he's being disobedient here. He shouldn't have gone fishing, The other half say, well, they're not really disobeying. There's really nothing to prohibit them from going out there and and doing what they do professionally to earn some income, right? If you're going to wait, might as well be productive. Get out there and do what you do. All we know for sure is that while the seven guys are fishing, by the way, where are the other four? Are they still up on the mountain going, nope, you guys knock yourself out there on the lake. We're going to stay right here and wait upon the Lord. We don't know, but it's possible, right? This is the time that Jesus chooses then to suddenly appear and and come to his disciples again. And notice John uses the term twice in verse 1, manifested himself, right? In the Greek, this is a particular verb that speaks to a revealing, a sudden, supernatural, startling appearance of the risen Christ. And this fits in with all the other post-resurrection appearances. Jesus shows up when people aren't expecting him. Okay, so then look at verse 3. How do Peter and the guys do out there on the water? How many of you guys fish, by the way? Okay, so you're going to connect with some of this, right? They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught bubkis, as they say in Yiddish. Nothing. (laughs) They caught nothing. So, as we saw in the Luke 5 passage, they're fishing at night, which is which was typical of that day. It gets very hot in Galilee, so they fished at night. That still happens. That's when the fishing takes place, even today. But catching zero fish over an entire night is beyond frustrating. This is why they call, sometimes they call fishing sitting with poles, because that's all you end up doing. You're just sitting with a pole in my hand, catching nothing. Nothing. So imagine this work, casting these nets into the sea over and over, and then drawing them back in. Nothing. Coming up empty. Maybe over 12 hours of work coming up completely empty. So so much for their self-confidence as professional fishermen. And I'm just wondering, at some point during the night, did Peter go, maybe we should have stayed on the mountain. (laughs) This is not working out like I thought it would have. But then, verse 4 When the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Oh, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples didn't know it was Jesus. Now, why would that be? Well, two possibilities. We've already seen multiple times that when Jesus appears after the resurrection, his physical form looks different than when he was alive before the crucifixion. So it could be that, or there could be a natural uh, explanation as well. We're going to find out they're 100 yards from the shore, so that's a, a decent distance. And that if, if the light's just coming up, it could have been too dark to recognize them. We don't know for sure. But watch now in verse 5 how Jesus forms this question. So Jesus said to them, Children, you don't have any fish, do you? He didn't go, hey, are they biting? He said, you don't have any fish, do you? And they answered him, no. <laughs> right? Right? So I, I just put a picture up here just so you can get a, an image of what this might have looked like. What's interesting here is the greeting he uses, children. And by the way, he would have been shouting this because if you've ever tried to speak to somebody a hundred yards away across water, you, gotta, you have to shout. Paideia in the Greek is a common greeting for that day. And it's, it's sort of a casual greeting. It's sort of like saying, hey guys, that's basically what Jesus says here. So it must have seemed to the men on the boat that this is just some random guy walking down the shoreline and he's asking a common question that I'm guessing if you went to Castaic Lake today, you'd probably hear somebody say this, right? And basically, hey guys, the fish aren't biting, are they? They're not biting. And I love their snappy response. No, thank you very much, Mr. Stranger. Thanks for rubbing it in. No, we haven't caught anything. Now, do you think Jesus knew they hadn't caught anything? Of course. Of course, right? There's no doubt in my mind that the Lord made sure they didn't catch anything that night. What he wants to hear them acknowledge is that they're insufficient in catching fish because he has a very particular lesson to teach them. And by the way, Jesus knows where the fish are. (laughs) I love this, verse 6. And he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. Now, okay. This scene makes me laugh. You, you, when you read these stories, you got again got to put yourself into the story. Have a sense of humor. Put yourself in their sandals here, and you can feel the tension. Nothing is going well for these guys. Nothing. They're not sure what they're supposed to be doing. Jesus hasn't appeared to them yet. They don't have instructions. So they go on the lake and do what they do best, but that is a complete failure. They're exhausted. They're unsure what to do. And now this yahoo on the shoreline is shouting to us fishermen about what we should do. It it makes me laugh. It says, do do you think we we didn't think about both sides of the boat? Do you think the fish know the difference? Like, oh, okay, Mr. Stranger on the shoreline, the fish are all over here because they know we're, come on, right? These conversations had to be happening in the boat. But here's the thing, and I've heard this from guys who really love to fish. When you're having a bad day on the lake and you can't catch anything, you'll take almost any advice. Is it true? Just to get a nibble on the line. It's almost a superstition among fishermen because you're like, I've I got nothing, but maybe that guy does know something that I haven't figured out yet, so I'll take his advice. And so to their credit, Peter and the guys heed the advice of this stranger, continuing in verse 6, so they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Ding, light bulb. Does this sound familiar, you guys? Right? This, remember what we just read in Luke 5? Should this not have been very familiar at this moment? Ah, this is the moment John puts two and two together, right? And suddenly the memory of what had taken place years before come flooding back to him. Verse seven, therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. Good job, John, right? I mean, who else could it be? That doesn't happen. Fish don't congregate on one side of a boat. Unless, I mean, maybe you guys can help me out here. Has that ever happened? There's none over here and there's thousands. No, that doesn't happen, right? But of course it's John who figures it out and not Peter. And to me, this is the fun part. Remember, how many weeks ago was it we talked about how John and Peter both ran to the empty tomb? And John puts in this funny little historical note about, I beat Peter to the tomb, right? Almost like a little competitive thing. Yeah, we both ran, but I got there first. Well... In this situation, Peter is not going to let John win. Peter is not going to wait around and let anyone get to the Lord before him. Look what it says. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, thank you, John, he put his outer garment on for he had stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. He threw himself. Guys, don't read over this. I love this picture. Make fun of Peter all you want, but to me, this is one of the most beautiful expressions of emotion and love for the Lord in the entire New Testament. It's beautiful. Every time I read this story, I sort of get a lump in my throat. The boat cannot move quickly enough for Peter to get to shore. He's not gonna wait. He plunges into that ocean, right? He grabs his outer garment. He had been kind of stripped down to his undergarments cuz he's sweating. He's working, right? But he's not going to leave his outer outer garment in the boat. So he grabs it, he throws it on. My guess is he tucked it in down here so that he could swim and he just without a second thought plunges into the sea. Who cares about the fish? Right? I mean, that's his income. Who cares? The Lord's on the shore. He didn't care about the boat. Let the boat sink. I don't care. The Lord is on the shore. My friends, they'll get there at some point. I am going to see the Lord. He so wants to be in the presence of Jesus, and he can't get there fast enough. What I love about this, Peter doesn't take the time to overthink his past failures, which we all do so often. Oh, my past failures, I can't go to the Lord, right? He doesn't rehearse that in his mind. man! I just weeks ago, I denied him three times. Right? He doesn't rehearse that in his mind. He doesn't let the guilt of those moments, the shame of it, prevent him from racing as fast as he can to the Lord. And he's not one bit concerned about what other people think of him. Because <laughs> right? everybody else would be going, Peter, what are you doing? Right? Who just jumps into the sea like that? He doesn't care because the Lord's on the shore. That's amazing stuff. Verse 8, but the other disciples, guys got stuck with the boat, right, came in The little boat, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards away. That seems kind of far for me, but but dragging the net full of fish. And what do they find when they get there? Look at verse 9. What do they find? So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Now, notice a couple things here. Jesus already has fish on the barbecue before they even get in with the fish. So Jesus doesn't need their fish. He's already got a fire going. He's already got fish. Guys, where'd the fish come from? And he's got bread. how do he pull that out of thin air, right? And we know it's, it's fishes and loaves again. I mean, all these things, these memories are coming flooding back. It's fishes and loaves, just like back in John 6 when he took took a handful of these things and he, he multiplied them and fed thousands of people. Where? By the Sea of Galilee. All of these things are coming full circle in this particular story. Now the guys roll up. They're still struggling to bring the fish in, and they can already smell the breakfast that Jesus is preparing for them on the shoreline. Verse 11, Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. That's important. So historical side note, when you picture Simon Peter, wh- what kind of a man do you picture? Most of us picture kind of a, I don't I've always p- big, physical, strong guy, right? Rough hands, fisherman and all that. Well, it probably comes from verse 11 here. The weight of that net and 153 fish. And yet John says he went in by himself and drug it to the land. Now maybe he's just hyped up, right? The adrenaline's flowing because the Lord is there. But but I think this helps us understand Peter is a big, strong, physical guy. What about the number here? 153 fish. Did you know that that reams and reams of books have been written about trying to find a hidden meaning in the number 153 because this is what people do right we have too much time on our hands we're like oh, a hidden number right i mean even some great church fathers augustine wrote extensively about this and so did jerome and they came up with all kinds of suggestions mathematical And and I'm not a math guy, so I didn't understand any of it. But Augustine talked about 153 is the triangular number of 17 and blah, 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 on and on and on. And it's all kind of nonsense. There's really no indication in the text that that number is special. Can I give you what I think is the most logical explanation? It's really boring. You ready? Fishermen like to catch, like to count their fish. They, they, they like to tally their fish, especially when you pull in this many. I'm guessing somebody was there like, that is the biggest load of fish I've ever seen. Somebody count it. And they did. And then John said, that's an impressive number. I'm going to put it in my gospel. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think that's probably the most logical explanation rather than trying to figure out hidden codes in the Bible. Anything. One thing is for sure in his mind, in John's mind, This 153 fish was just another convincing proof that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is sovereign over the wind and over the waves and over the fish. And when Jesus is there, nothing is impossible. This would have been just another proof. And look at what in verse 12. Jesus said, hey, come and have some breakfast, which is so beautifully normal, isn't it? Right? Uh, This is a group of men who are about to change the world and a guy who's come back from the dead, and they're just going to sit around a campfire, and 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 bond with each other, and talk about the mission, and eat some fish and bread. It's just to me, it's just a remarkable thing that they're able to do this. But here's an interesting little a little uh, uh, tidbit in the in the text here. John's description of this, he says very specifically, a charcoal fire, and he's the only gospel writer to use this particular word, which is uh, anthracia. And it's only used twice in John's gospel. Here, to describe this charcoal fire, guess where else? Back in chapter 18, when Peter was warming his hands by a charcoal fire right before he denies the Lord. So think about this for a second. I'm, I'm just wondering, how many times did Peter sit around a fire like this and think back? To how he denied the lord three times my guess is every time he stood by a fire it kept him humble to remember how he had failed in that moment and how gracious the lord had been to him okay look at verse the rest of verse 12 this is going to sound kind of strange to us it says none of the disciples ventured to question him who are you knowing that it was the lord huh well again as we've seen over and over again at the tomb on the road to Emmaus in the locked room Jesus didn't physically look exactly as he had before his body his body is glorified right it's not fit for time and space anymore it's not fit for the earth he is in some type of form that is now built for eternity and someday we'll be made like him right and as mysterious as this sounds to us, we, again, we have to try to understand what these, these very simple men were dealing with back when Jesus appeared to them. Honestly, ask yourself this question. How do you sit there with a glorified person and have a normal morning? How do you sit around a fire and eat fish with just a glorified guy right here to my right? The, I, here's, here's what I think John's saying here. These guys are still a little bit uneasy around the risen Christ. Because it's not every day that you hang out with a guy that came back from the dead. And it's now got an eternal form. So it sounds to me like the disciples wanted to ask, Lord, is it really you? But they don't. Why? Because who else could it be? Right? They know it's him. And I'll tell you this much, who else is at that campfire, Thomas? He is the least likely man to doubt. (laughs) That this is actually Jesus. He's not asking a single question, right? There's all these little nuances to the personalities of these men and what they're having. How many times have you ever even thought about that? What would it have been to sit physically on the earth around Jesus as a risen being? Mind blowing stuff. Okay, let's wrap up with verses 13, 14, then we'll make some observations. Verse 13 So Jesus came and he took the bread and he served them, didn't he? He gave it to them. And the fish likewise. So not only am I hanging out with a glorified person, this person is serving me breakfast. This is now the third time that Jesus was what? Manifested. Same word. So whatever you see in scripture, a bracketing of a, of a key word like that, manifested, verse 1, verse 14, we call that an inclusio, which means it's designed to be sort of studied as one pericope or one unit of thought. John is putting those things together. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Okay, so let's make some observations because this story is so rich with symbolism and there's so many things to learn here. I'm going to give you four quick things and then we'll be done. Here we go. Ready? Number one. See how once again, and we've said this multiple times, Jesus loved his friends to the very end. Right up to the moment of his ascension, Jesus is loving his friends think how gracious he's being in this moment think about teaching a group of men for three years and watching them continue to be so dense and so not be able to understand and yet to be so gracious doesn't chastise them for going fishing they could have been preaching right could they not have been walking through Galilee preaching sure doesn't chastise them for fishing But he is going to use their failure as an object lesson to teach them, right? But even as he does that, as he is using their failure on the lake to teach them and to show them things, he's also making them breakfast. In a very practical way, he is loving them so well. He's spending time with them, giving them fellowship. He's providing for them. In this moment, he's providing for them. He's serving them. Just like he'd washed their feet in the upper room, now he's making them breakfast. And and on top of all that, this is the the good shepherd feeding his lambs, right? And this becomes an important modeling moment for what we're gonna study next week when Jesus sits down with this face-to-face, one-on-one discussion with Peter about what? Feeding his lambs. So Jesus models it here Feeds his lambs and then says to Peter, What? Go and feed my lambs. So important, right? This is the good shepherd. So, and, and by the way, when I was studying this last night, I started getting excited about the eternity to come when we, we all get to dine with Jesus. He says, remember, he says he'll drink again of the, the fruit of the vine in the kingdom to come. We get the marriage supper of the lamb. We someday are gonna get to sit and dine with the Lord. Wow. So cool. Second thing we learn from this. The fishing metaphor gets reaffirmed here. It had been three years since that first moment by the Sea of Galilee. You're going to be fishers of men. How likely is it they'd sort of let that idea drift from their mind? They'd forgotten. In all of the the stress of the, the three years and the crucifixion, all that stuff, they'd forgotten that original calling. So it's like Jesus... Jesus orchestrates this whole thing and says, guys, do you remember what I told you? You're going to be fishers of men. Let's get back to that. Let's get back to that calling. So this massive hall of fish was a symbol of this great missionary work that now lies ahead of them. This great harvest of souls that now has to be brought into the boat. All these these beautiful symbols in this, right? And guess what? In terms of evangelism going out there, the Lord knows where the fish are. All you got to do is get out there and cast the net because he knows where they are. Jesus has marked out those whom he will save and he is going to make sure sovereignly that everyone will be caught. And like this net, the size of that, that net is so big it'll never be torn. As God calls his fish into the boat, all these pictures are being taught here by Jesus. It's really, really quite beautiful. So that's number two. It's a reaffirming of that calling to be fishers of men. Number three, Jesus always powers our successes. I I hope we've learned this by now, right? He always is the one who powers our successes. This whole scene is a manifestation of his presence and his confirmation that he is going to empower what comes next. He will power their success. He is the one who not only knows where the fish are, but he also makes the fishermen fruitful. Both sides of that are critical. He knows where the fish are, the people that we need to share with, but he also makes us, the fishermen, fruitful in that endeavor. Him, not us. So important to know. Notice how Jesus did this miracle. Could, let me ask you, could Jesus have commanded the fish to jump in the boat? Now that would be wild. Whew, right? Right? Fish is jumping in the boat. No, he, did, he could have, but he didn't. What did he say? you got to go cast your net. I'm going to fill the net, but you've got to cast the net because the Lord works through his people. He supplies the power, right? But he says, you got to go out there. you got to be faithful. you got to obey, and then I will accomplish my will through you. So the difference here is not are the fish on the left side of the boat or on the right side of the boat. The difference is working in our strength to try to fish versus trusting in the Lord's power in order to fish. Big difference. So one of the things that Jesus wants his guys to see that morning is you can work all night long, work, 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 and get no results. None. So acknowledge what I taught you earlier up in the upper room, right? What did he say? Abide in me. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. So knock yourself out, fish all night, you get nothing because you didn't abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So honest question, had you been in that boat, had you been in that boat that day and that stranger was shouting advice to you, would you have obeyed or would you have let your pride rise up in you and said, Psst, I'm a professional, leave me alone? Because we do this sometimes. We do this sometimes. We, 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 we trust in our own skill, our own training. I'm the first guy to admit this as the guy preaching. It's so easy to trust in your experience, your profession, the skills you've developed, and say, I'm making this happen. But that's the way to get no results. Our insufficiency, his sufficiency. The other thing Jesus wants them to understand that that even after he goes away, and he's about to go away soon to return to the Father, he still will be the power for their success. And you see it in the contrast here. This is so important. In Luke 5, in that first story, where was Jesus? In the boat. And that represents the fact that he was physically present with the guys for three years. Where is he in this story in John 21? Far off on the shore. And yet, in both cases, Jesus empowers the success. So even after he goes away to heaven, he's far away, he is still going to guide and empower and provide for his disciples. So important to understand. Is this clicking? you making making sense? That's why we started with Luke 5. You've got to connect these two stories and all the symbolism. Last thing, and I'll be done. Number four, to live as a Christian is to have an audacious love for Jesus. The picture of Peter throwing himself into that lake ought to be the core of your heart too. All of us. All of us. To love him with a sense of abandon. If I dare say it, to love him with a sense of recklessness. That you'd be willing to throw yourself into the sea to get to him. Honest question, again. Would your heart have burst at the news that it was Jesus on the shore? You're 100 yards away. Maybe you don't swim well. Have you, some of you have been in the Sea of Galilee. It's kind of dark and scary. Would you have plunged into the sea? Would you have made that swim to get to the Lord? It's a Deuteronomy 6 5 heart, isn't it? To love the Lord your God with how much of your heart? All of it. How much of your soul? All of it. How much of your strength? all of it. All is a lot. All is an audacious love. It's a reckless love, one that takes risks, one that gives everything and holds nothing back. So if you had to describe to somebody who doesn't know anything about Christianity how you live that out today, how you give all of your heart, soul, and strength to Jesus, how would you describe that? I challenge myself with that question. Could I do it? Could I describe that? Like how that gets fleshed out in my life, my all? Or would I have said, I'm going to jump. <sighs> I'm not going to jump in that water. I mean, I love Jesus, but to jump in the water? Mm, I just don't know. If, if that's not your heart, to get to the Lord as fast as possible, today is a great day to pray and to ask the Lord to give you more of what Simon Peter had. And trust me, the guy's not perfect, right? He makes a lot of mistakes, but Peter gets this right. Ask the Lord as a point of prayer. Give me what Simon Peter had. I want to have an audacious love for my Savior. Amen? More about him next week, right? He's the focus. That passage about him talking to Jesus, guys, is so important for the church and for our lives so make sure you come back next week. Let's pray. Lord, we are always amazed at how a narrative in your word that looks so simple on its face is so filled with beautiful meanings that you have, you have given it to, to the text by your spirit and you have allowed us, Lord, to be illuminated by your spirit and to see these things and, and Lord, to challenge our hearts with what, again, looks like a simple story Father, I pray that that we will walk out of here today understanding our insufficiency and having our eyes focused on you. That is what Peter was so focused on in that moment, not on the past, not on the present, but, but on you, Lord, to be with you. Lord, may that be my heart this morning that I wouldn't get distracted by the so many things in this world that want to draw our attention away, but, but that my eyes would stay focused on you, Lord, that I would be willing to give all of who I am to you in the days that you give me on the earth until you call me home and I can see you face to face. Thank you, Jesus, for this amazing story, for your word, and for the work of the Spirit in us. Even now, Lord, as we respond in song, help us to give all that we are As we sing praises to you, in Jesus' name we pray.